Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's time for the legendary law and order stories of the Wild West. This podcast features a forensic psychologist that looks at the history of the most infamous and famous outlaws and cowboys of the Wild West. So sit back, partner, and take a listen. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we have a great guest, Professor Kelly J. Dixon. She's an archaeologist and professor at the University of Montana's Department of Anthropology. She specializes in archaeologies of adaptation, boom towns, colonization, colonialism, extractive industries, and a whole lot more. We don't have the time today to cover it all, but she's the right person for having the topic today. She has a great book called Boomtown Saloons, Archaeology and History in Virginia City, we're going to find out what the Wild West was really like. Before we get started, you know what to do. Share, subscribe, hit that like button. You know what we you know we like it. Let's not waste any more time. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dixon. Welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. You are all here with a group of advanced students at the University of Montana. We are in a historical archaeology class together. So I think before we start rolling and address some of the questions that Dr. Carlos has, I will say a few words about what historical archaeology is for your audiences, although I bet anybody in this class would be happy to tell him what historical archaeology is. But in short, um, while archaeology is associated with ancient and exotic cultures and places, um, it actually is a very diverse field with people studying ancient humanity and even pre-humans right up to like the past hundred years. And uh, those of us who study the recent past are often identified as quote unquote historical archaeologists or archaeologists of the recent past or archaeologists of the modern world. Um, And we are a text aided field in that We are lucky. You can see here we have historic photos. We have historic drawings and wood carvings like this, you know, home for the boys saloon brawl, Um, oral histories, diaries, newspapers, maps. We can use all of these information, all of these bits of information together with the archaeology. And ideally, we can tell a very complex story of the past. Um, And so we're considered a text aided field because of those other items besides archaeology, like Egyptologists are a text aided field because they have uh, different forms of writing. Sinologists have ancient Chinese, Assyriologists have cuneiform tablets that they use with their archaeology. So we are that type of archaeologist, but we're also a very unique type of archaeologist and that, as I like to tell these guys here, We study what the hell happened on this planet over the past 500 years. It's been a lot. It involves colonization and colonialism and and the era of slavery and racialization. Um, But it's also the era of 
capitalism. Um, and, and we're learning so much about humanity every day. And you'd think it's all written in history books, right, class? Yeah, ah, right. It's really not. Um, what we've learned is history is often written by um, those who have power. And if we have any chance of democratizing history, if we can practice this type of archaeology, um, we can put some pieces of the puzzle back together and maybe help make paths for people who have been marginalized in history and who are sometimes still marginalized today. So there's a bit of a social justice flair to this field because you do have quite uh, a sense of responsibility once you know what you know. But I'll stop there before I talk for another hour on the <laughs> definition of historical archeology. span No, it's fascinating because I know when you read um, stories about Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday, whoever, you know, a lot of times you wonder what, what is the truth and what isn't the truth because they're trying to build up a character. A lot of times, like Buffalo Bill, obviously had a lot of financial incentives. That makes it kind of challenging, doesn't it, to do the, the research for you? Well, it does. In fact, we are we are up against a story of the American West that has been told most powerfully and most accessibly and probably in the most fun way um, by Hollywood and by fiction writers and, and dime novelists. And so they have portrayed a, maybe a wilder West than it was, um, but I do think there was a lot of wildness going on as well. Um, I'm trying to advance to another slide and escape also from this slideshow and it is just keeping me frozen. Um, so, this is just a, a slide that was intended to accompany my, accompany my rant about what historical archaeology is. Um, I'm going to just move right on and just to remind you of the text-aided approach. Um, but what I'd like to do today is take us across space and time um, and, and, and let's go back to the 1860s and the 1870s as if we are in a mining boom town in the so-called Wild West. Uh, we're going to Virginia City, Nevada. Nevada is shown here in the slide. Um, just zooming in a little bit more to make you feel like you're there. Um, this part of Nevada is where the Great Basin starts to meet what are the Sierra Nevada mountains. And so Virginia City is up in this rugged mountain range that has pinyon pine and desert scrub. Um, and, and, and then it's quite close to Lake Tahoe where you have these massive tall pine trees. And during this period, people say they could ride their horses at a full gallop through the forests in the Tahoe region and never lose their hat on the lowest branches of the trees because the native people in that area practiced controlled burning. Um, and they had these beautiful, healthy forests with these ancient, huge trees that when uh, silver and eventually gold were found in places like Virginia City, they cut them all down and deforested the heck out of it so that they could make square set timbering to support the mines. Um, yay, mining. Okay, that was nasty. Um, so, this is what's called a bird's eye view. This is a bird's eye view from 1861 that gives us a sense of what Virginia City looked like then. 
Um, there was uh, silver found and eventually gold in 1859. So if you just look at this and, and you could count, there are scores of buildings in just two years Places like this went from a mining exploration camp into a bona fide boom town. Um, we'll look at another bird's eye view soon um, from 1875. And I just want you guys to track how in such a short amount of time, these mining boom towns grew. Um, this is our setting. We're a bit in an arid desert with a lot of mountains and a lot of pinyon pine. We're in the territory of the Northern Paiute and the Washoe and the Southern Paiute and the Western Shoshone as well. Imagine what they thought as all these people started moving in and cutting down all the trees. And people came from everywhere. As a reminder, this is um, 1859, 1860. It was a decade earlier, 1849, that the California gold rush shot was heard around the world. So there were already a lot of people in Northern California for the gold mines. And as those were starting to quiet down, when people were discovering gold and silver over here in Nevada, everybody flocked like San Francisco almost moved over to Virginia City, Nevada. And when you go there today, a lot of the architecture looks like a lot of the San Francisco architecture from that area. But not everybody went to work in the mines. The miners had a lot of disposable income. And so it was a thing to mine the miners. If you were a shrewd businessman or businesswoman, um, you could make a lot of money on these guys with their disposable income. And many of them were bachelors. Um, so as you can imagine, of all the different businesses that were in boom towns like this, saloons usually outnumbered most of the other retail establishments. So like, whoa, <laughs> who knew, right? Um, we, it, so when you start to think about these stories of Hollywood and fiction and dime novels, there's always a saloon, probably because they were always there. Um, when these places were tent camps before somebody decided there was enough gold or silver to build a building, um, uh, they, the, one of the first tents that went up was a saloon and they were selling like really overpriced whiskey because they could. Estimates are that there were over 100 saloons operating in Virginia City during its mining heyday, just to give wow. you a sense, right? Yeah. You know the population might have been at that time, too? Yeah, it was between about 20 and 25,000 people. That's a lot. That's a lot. And well, from, I think... People and this this is like kind of the setup for my saloon discussion with you guys today. Imagine people coming from all over the world with different languages and different cultures and different customs. There was extreme intense cultural contact in these mining boom towns um, and a lot of hostility and friction, often because of miscommunication. Um, and so, therefore, there were all kinds of different saloons each of them trying to target a different audience. Um, if you've heard terms like one bit and two bit, um, uh, two bits is actually 25 cents. 
Um, and a two-bit saloon was pretty nice. If you were in a two-bit saloon and paying 25 cents for your drink, you were probably in a pretty fancy location. The, the one-bit saloons were maybe more divey, might have just had like a cheap pine bar and a few bottles. Um, so, you know, a little more affordable, but you get what you pay for. Um, but I have the beyond on here because... Um, there were saloons with billiard halls. There were saloons with dancing girls and you could pay a dancing girl to dance with you. Um, there were saloons that offered like coffee and books, like almost if you could imagine it, it was there. Um, but, you know, I think what I got frustrated with is the more I studied this, the more I realized that there was extreme diversity in the types of saloons that were catering to the diversity of the human population. But yet there was always like the same people sitting in the same saloon, if there's a Hollywood scene. And, you know, instead of like going in there to relax and have a drink after a rough day working in the mines and, you know, in a life-threatening situation, like, nobody wants to get in a fight or a brawl everybody wants to have like a meal and a drink and maybe go to bed but um apparently and you know this goes back this is a journalism story um there were journalists who confessed that on slower news days they were you know apt to let the fancy get let fancy get the upper hand of fact um, because it sold newspapers. So usually if there was a shooting or something went on in a saloon, it hit the newspapers. Um, but that might've been like one saloon out of 100 where that shooting took place. But that's, that story is what gets covered in the papers and then what ends up in the long-term history later. And all of a sudden, everybody thinks you're maybe going to the saloon for certain death instead of just to relax and socialize and maybe have a drink. Not much has changed today. <laughs> right. Not much has changed. Well, you know, honestly, with a lot of archaeology, we keep saying that. If if this were another lecture and we were talking about climate change and all the other examples of the human past where people, you'd think they'd learn from their past mistakes, but they don't. But that's a lecture for another day. Um, so, yeah, Hollywood certainly played on, you know, these occasional but sensationalized brawls. Um, and even today, if we were to walk downtown Virginia City, Nevada today, there's no shortage of saloons. Um, there's not 100 saloons anymore, but, um, you know, the population also dwindled. I should pause and say, while the mining heyday was 1870s into the early 1880s by the mid and late 1880s the the mines were going bust and like many other boom towns people moved away and went on to the next great mining option um and and everybody was looking for a new bonanza and so a lot of these places like virginia city became ghost towns because everybody moved away but not everybody moved away from virginia city a few people lingered. Um, so like right after Prohibition era and by the mid 20th century, when television programs like Bonanza started to air and they were riding from their ranch to the local place, Virginia City nearby, um, this was allegedly the setting. And so a lot of the buildings that had been standing, you can see, you know, there's a lot of brickwork and a stonework and um, pretty ornate and lovely buildings. After Bonanza aired, um, a lot of the owners put up like barn wood on some of their beautiful brick buildings to make it look more like the dusty set of Bonanza. Um, 
And that inspired historians and architectural historians, as well as laws to say, hey, these need to be preserved. Um, so now when you go there today, the buildings are preserved. It is a national historic landmark. Um, and people go there as tourists to experience the Old West. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a suicide table and there's a bucket of blood saloon. And a lot of these themes from the violence and the so-called Wild West are quite still alive and well and part of the tourist allure. Um, so it was kind of in that context that I ended up uh, entering into this journey of saloons. Um, I'll make a, a, a quick biological point here and then I'll uh, and then I'll be happy to keep rambling or pause and answer a question. But um, my job at one point in my career um, was to work as a sort of historic cop in Virginia City <laughs> because um, anybody living in that national historic landmark, um, and there are people who live there and people who own businesses, if they do any kind of um, architectural modification to their building, it has to be historically accurate. Um, there can't be a bunch of geodesic domes there or it won't make people feel like they're in the 1870s. Oh, and wow. so it was my job to work with people um, on their building projects and, and, and work with a, a special historic commission to make sure that the historical character of the place stayed intact despite development. Um, but it was in that world that we were asked to look at this saloon space that was below an opera house because they were rehabilitating the opera house. And that led me down this saloon path. Um, and it just so happened that somebody else had excavated two other saloons. And then there's a fourth saloon that I became very interested in because it was owned and operated by an African-American. And this was right after the Civil War and during Reconstruction era. So qu quite quickly, my interests changed from, oh, saloons are really cool. There's this Wild West thing to, oh, my God, there is a whole story about the United States multicultural history and I think it could be found if we walk through the doors of the saloon and maybe there's a little social and historical justice along the way. So there's your point of entry. I have a bunch of other slides and stories to tell, but I, I should hit pause on myself um, to see if you'd like to ask me something and then I'll ramble and move along. And by the way, folks, again, we're talking to Professor Kelly J. Dixon. The book is called Boomtown Saloons, Archaeology and History in Virginia City. I highly recommend it. It's a really interesting, fascinating look, actually, into this Wild West period. Uh, you know what, Dr. Dixon, actually, I kind of curious question about you. Um, did you have a past where you enjoyed this as a child? Did your parents ever watch Wild West movies or shows and you kind of grew up with gun smoke? I mean, I, I don't know how I, I don't want to estimate your age, but <laughs> my, at my age, you're 51. No, it, but, it, it's, a, it's a good question. It's a really good question. Um, uh for full disclosure, everyone, I was born in 1970. Um, yeah. <laughs> let everybody know I'm 53. Um, uh, I had a dad who was always watching Westerns, um, whether, you know, reruns or, and he was a John Wayne fan. And so I wasn't as much interested, but they were kind of always in the backdrop to the point where I definitely thought that saloons were all about someone getting shot. Um, 
And as I grew up, I, I went on a path eventually that led me to archaeology. Um, and that is how I ended up with this job in Virginia City. But before I ended up there, I ended up doing a study on sugar and plantations throughout the world because of I have a degree in industrial archaeology and I won't get into that. But the study of sugar is inherently collected, connected to the study of alcohol um, as well as capitalism. And, and so that all ends up being a good foundation for this. But while I was looking at different plantations and sugar throughout the world, I learned about this subfield of historical archaeology that at the time was called African-American archaeology. It has now expanded and it's called archaeology of the African diaspora. Um, and I realized that a lot of, at the time, and this is like in the 1990s, early 2000s, there had been a lot of archaeology of the African diaspora, but most of it took place with people in enslaved settings and enslaved contexts, whether it was working at you know, Thomas Jefferson's plantation or Mount Vernon uh, or these different places where famous people lived, but they had enslaved people, archaeologists were just starting to do excavations there. And so as I learned more about that, I got a little frustrated because I knew that, at least in the United States, the largest unforced migration of people of African ancestry happened after the Civil War and into the American West. And yet, if you were to just use the archaeology that was done at the time to tell their story, it would look like there was a lot of stories of freedom lacking. And so I, I didn't know that I was going to end up in an African-American saloon just yet. But as I took this job in Virginia City, I already came in with a mindset that there, there should be more stories about African-Americans in archeological context. And I was maybe frustrated with why more archeologists weren't doing it. And I even did like a lit review. And at the time I could count on like one to two hands, how many archeologists throughout the vast American West were looking at African-American communities. And there weren't very many, but I didn't think I'd be able to do anything about that with a saloon because I didn't know about this one saloon called the Boston Saloon at the time. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is it, it really looking at these movies and TV shows like Gunsmoke or Bonanza, we get a really distorted view of history because of because of Hollywood. Um, There's such a lack of African-American actors that were prevalent during those days. You thought everybody was white. Um, the majority were in certain spots, but still it wasn't that heavy. And you never saw anybody from any other ethnicity. So it was kind of interesting to see it. And when I mean white, I guess for European descent to be more accurate, but yeah, it's kind of interesting to see that. Um, my other question kind of along the same lines, I keep thinking, I don't know why I keep popping up with Gunsmoke, but um, Kitty in Gunsmoke, she owned the saloon, but that was a prevalent theme and other shows and movies, was that really common that women own saloons? They did. They did. In oh. fact, um, one of the things I have appreciated the most about learning about the Boston Saloon, the African-American Saloon, is that in order to get there, um, working with a wonderful historian who went through census records and historic maps to see where were the African-American people living and 
They were not living in a designated ethnic neighborhood like the Asian uh, immigrants had to live in Chinatowns, as an example. They were living relatively integrated throughout the community, even in boarding houses with European immigrants. Um, and there were, and, and, and I learned that there were, there was a doctor in town who practiced holistic medicine and kept things clean while everybody else was, you know, trying to get you to drink mercury. Um, and um, I learned about a woman entrepreneur named Amanda Payne, who um, owned her own boarding house and owned her own saloon. So to answer your question, not only did women own saloons, but women like Amanda Payne, um, lived through the Civil War, made it to the West, and was an extremely successful entrepreneur, um, and, and not only ran a saloon, but other, other things as well. So um, I think what, what we're seeing in places like Virginia City is that there were opportunities for everybody. Um, and anybody who had a clever idea about a new gimmick that could be offered in a saloon that somebody else hadn't done yet, um, they were probably going to do pretty well. Sometimes it was food or some of the other activities I mentioned. But that's a really good question. Um, and, and, and yet women were involved in different ways as well. Um, there were red light districts in Virginia City mm -hmm. as well as in our own hometown here of Missoula. Um, uh, and in other places throughout the mining West, you know, the, the, the story of vice, um, is, is one that can't be, you know, it can't be understated enough, you know, um, alcohol, tobacco, gambling, um, women, it was all part of the fun for the people with, ex with extra money. And sometimes the women were the ones mining the miners. That's funny. I didn't realize you were in Missoula. I have some friends over there in Missoula. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's funny. Um, did you come across any individuals? The one I keep hearing a lot sometimes from from friends of mine. I have uh, friends in law enforcement. Um, Bass Reeves. He was a very popular African American, uh, first black deputy U.S. marshal. I think it was west of the Mississippi. Did you come across any uh, lawmen that were African American or anything oh. like that at all? That's a good question. Um, not here in Virginia City. Um, uh, they worked in, in 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 many different walks of life. Um, uh, I know there uh, the the gentleman who we'll be talking about who owned the saloon, William Brown, started out as a street shoe polisher. Um, but within a year, he had enough money to open up his own saloon, and he he moved and moved, and then he ended up in like this great location, and that's where we ended up digging. Um, there was a family of uh barbers who had their own hair salons in town. Um, there were people who worked as a cook and as a chef. Um, a lot of them couldn't work in the mines because the minor miners unions were racist um, and often didn't let people of color be part of the unions. Um, but there were some African-American miners who still found ways to be miners, but just outside that system. Um, so we had a, a, a pretty good um, example of the, the different types of professions that could be had, but I didn't see a lawman. Um, that's a good question. I, I wish we had. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Um, we got some pictures too, folks. By the way, if you're listening to the podcast, we'll probably put this up on YouTube so you can see some of the PowerPoint slides so you don't miss out um, what she's sharing right now. I guess another question would be um, the idea of the saloon itself. What are some of the myths you want to dispel 
why we have you here on the show. Some of the things that you say, boy, did they ever get this wrong? <laughs> and they're not even close. Anything that really stood out to you? You know, what, what stood out the most was the level of violence. Um, and I, I think I, I saw it as such a place that was opposite of violence that maybe I ranted about it too much in the book and publications. Um, but uh, honestly, it's the things that I could have never expected that we would find in saloons, the objects, the artifacts themselves that, um, that, that made me think differently. So what I'd like to do, I know this is kind of podcast and radio audience. So I'll, 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 I'll show some pictures of the things we found, but, in, and then I'll answer your question. Like, has anybody seen this in Hollywood before? You know, most of it is I'm shaking my head and I couldn't have even imagined it. Um, so uh, before we look at some of the objects, I'm now, this is the 1875 bird's eye view I promised to show you. Look how expansive the, the city became. And at, this is the time that the population estimates were between about 20 and 25,000 people. And this is the time when there were 100 saloons all you know worked in throughout this landscape. And I've got these little arrows pointing to the four different saloons that I I ended up studying um, and I'm going to zoom in on both of them because we looked at bird's eye views in the class last week and I was telling the students how fun it is. These are available through the Library of Congress online panoramic maps, um, not for every city, um, but if a city was large enough, they exist. And the bird's eye view artists were so accurate that if you can figure out your address from other historical records, you can almost feel like you're walking on the street right there and get a sense of what the building was like. And so um, my mentor, an archeologist named Don Hardesty, um, years before had excavated these two Irish owned saloons, um, one called the Hibernia Brewery and one called O'Brien and Costello's Saloon and Shooting Gallery, two activities everybody should always mix, right? <laughs> Um, goodness gracious. Um, and so there were these existing collections from, you know, the Saloon and Shooting Gallery and the Hibernia. Saloon and Shooting Gallery, as you can imagine, was full of all kinds of bullet casings. They really did use guns there. Like with this kind of archaeology, we can often complement what we know from the historical record, or we contradict it and tell a new story, or sometimes we just contribute to it. So those are three C's that I'll, I'll come back to here a little later. Um, now, Piper's Old Corner Bar and the Boston Saloon. The Piper's Old Corner Bar was the saloon that was beneath the opera house that I mentioned. Um, I didn't try to start digging saloons. This is just where we ended up. So I'm going to take you into the doors of the Opera House Saloon just for a second um, for some comparison. And then we're going to go down to the Boston Saloon here. Um, and just to give you a quick lay of the land, um, we've got B Street, D Street, and C Street. Now, when William Brown, who owned the Boston Saloon, opened up his very first saloon um, after being a street shoe polisher, that was up on B Street, kind of out of the center of town. But by the mid 1860s, he must have been successful enough that he moved his business down here to D Street. Um, D Street included a red light district all along here. But this saloon on the corner of the red light district, that was a two bit saloon. That was a fancy saloon right there on the edge of the red light, red light district. 
And then there was another opera house right across the street from the Boston Saloon. So when you when you look at what was happening there at the time, that was probably the entertainment district and like the best location to be. Um, or so I think with my presentist eyes. Um, so, but before we get there, this is what the opera house looked like. The saloon sat below the opera house. I have the little like square area here. It was called Piper's Old Corner Bar. John Piper was a German immigrant who uh, moved to Virginia City. Um, at one point, he became mayor. Another, another thing about the saloon keepers is they usually were, had to be likable, had to be shrewd businessmen get, and women and get along with different people. Um, and John Piper eventually did become mayor of Virginia City, but he owned this opera house. It lived for years. It even burned down and it burned while the saloon was still operating. But one day he just never, ever reopened the opera house saloon and left it as this burned out hollow shell of a saloon space below the building. And these are the people working in there. Um, it's like working in a cave. Um, they never redid the space. It was as if the whole opera house collapsed on top of the saloon and then they walked away. And I kid you not, we had more artifacts than dirt when we were in there trying to excavate. And I had never thought about what an opera house saloon might look like or what types of things might be in there. Um, and these are just to, this is a long answer to your question, Dr. Carlos. Never in my wildest dreams would I have imagined, let's just talk about these things in the middle. And for students playing Artifact of the Day, this might be a really fun set for you to write down some guesses. Um, what we have here is, this is a shell, like a seashell, a crab claw, and this is another shell that like looks like it got fused with metal and other things. Um, and then over here, we've got two pieces of coral and then another larger piece of shell. So let's all think of our Hollywood stereotypes and saloons just with that little collection of objects right now. Um, and I, I'm wondering if anybody has any guesses. Dr. Carlos, what do you make of that? Here we are in this opera house saloon. What the heck's going on in there? Any guesses? You mean with the shells and stuff? That you yeah, think? let's just, we'll just stay with the shells alone. Forget about all the bright, shiny objects. I don't think it comes to my mind as people traveling from, from California or from beaches. That's the only thing I can think of on top of my head. Yeah, yeah, so good. I I, I kind of thought, so, thought the same thing. We are landlocked Nevada. These had to come in from somewhere, although there was a glacial lake there in the end of the ice age, but these weren't deep enough for that. Um, so that's a good guess. I'm going to throw something else out there. I'm looking at the students. If anybody wants to raise their hand, I'll call on you. Any thoughts? Oh, we've got one student thinking maybe it's food, which is a really good guess. And places in Virginia, like Virginia City, after the railroads went in, were known for having, you know, oysters that came in fresh from the coast because they had refrigerated cars on the trains. So that is a really good guess. Um, the objects that aren't photoed here that were found in context were very, very thin, clear or colorless glass, almost like window glass. And I still didn't really think anything of it 
context is everything, but I happened to be reading somebody's recollections about a fancy saloon in Virginia City and how nice it was. And it was so cool. They even had an aquarium. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And so after I read that, I had one of those holy moly moments and I went back and saw that there was really thin glass that looked like it could have been from an aquarium. And lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, one of the many rabbit holes you go down in this business and you go down many, especially if you have thousands of artifacts you have to study, was that the aquarium was invented in like the middle 19th century. Um, and for the first time ever, people could look in at an underwater world as it was in action instead of imagining it from, you know, a water going vessel above or, you know, maybe swimming underneath. This was pretty big deal and ended up being a great signifier of one of the fancy accoutrements in a saloon like that of the Opera House Saloon. Um, so never could I have imagined that. Um, I could have imagined some of these other things. Upper left-hand corner is an ornate spittoon for mm. all your tobacco spit. You don't want to get it on the floor. Um, I've seen kind of uglier metal spittoons, but Piper's Old Corner Bar had not one of these, but three. And one was large, one was medium, and one was small, like a mama bear, a papa bear, and a baby bear. The most beautiful uh, uh, spittoons for their clientele you could imagine. They all shared that one spittoon or two. <laughs> I don't know. I know. You know, I kind of wonder and wish we had maybe done a chemical residue analysis on it, but they, they, you know, they didn't come out intact. It's hard to see, but there's little teeny, teeny, tiny writing on this. These came out in so many fragments. Imagine the last days of this saloon ended with a fire and there was a huge building collapse on top of it. And so we were pawing through all of that. And this wonderful set of volunteers and field school students put all of these pieces back together again, not just on this, but a lot wow. of the other objects. So we didn't really know that we should have done chemical analysis on some of them because we got them all put back together, but had to clean them to do so. Um, but I know we are tight on time and it's already 1.40 and we haven't gotten to the Boston Saloon. So um, I feel like I want to escape from that. And, you know, I could go on and talk about water and mineral water bottles that we found there and how important that is in a mining district like Virginia City, because, um, there were the, the water was full of arsenic and other tasty things and was getting people sick all the time. So we found some really cool things related to water. Um, but now I'm going to move on to African diaspora archaeology in the American West. That is the main event here. Um, this is some of the using texts. These are snippets of historical directories, kind of like our old yellow pages and white pages. If anybody in the room even knows what those are, it's like this thing called a telephone book. Um, but 
You can get a sense of who was doing what where and then go back and forth with the census records and realize, oh, they were African-American. And this is this was part of my goal to see what we can learn about African diaspora archaeology in the American West. Um, and I was just trying to find a place where an African-American family or, or maybe had left or had lived or where did Dr. Stevenson live? But what happened is people moved a lot. And because of the boom and bust cycles of mining towns, um, a business would move from one location, you know, in a few months or in a year, even Dr. Stevenson had several different locations for his medical office. So I was kind of about ready to give up. Um, but then there was the story of an accidental shooting that came up in the Territorial Enterprise newspaper. Um, Mark Twain, by the way, worked for that newspaper for a spell when he accompanied his brother, um, who was assistant to the territorial governor of Nevada at the time. And you can, you can even though they didn't put their names on a lot of these news stories, you can really hear like the Mark Twain sound um, and his voice here. But um, the story tells about an accidental shooting that took place in this saloon kept by W.A.G. Brown at the corner of D and Union Streets. That's that great location across from the two-bit saloon down there. And it just tells, they were all sitting around a table playing a game of poker and somebody's pistol fell off the lap, their lap and hit the floor and the ball discharged in the leg of one of the players and it happened to be the only white guy in the saloon at the time. So, you know, it's kind of like a funny story, but it made the newspaper. But what I cared about is we've got an 1866 date here and this is at the corner of D and Union Streets. If we go back here to this directory, this is Brown, William A.G. at 4 South D Street. That directory is from 1875. So I did the math. And with the, my historian mentor, a gentleman named Ron James, who used to be the state historic preservation officer, said, holy crap, that's nine years at one location. How might we go dig there? And what else can we learn about it? Um, it was hard doing this kind of archaeology when most of the historical sources are written by people who are not people of color. Um, and there was an, a, a newspaper called the Pacific Appeal that was owned and edited by African Americans, and it was based in San Francisco, but they had somebody in Virginia City who was writing about life in Virginia City. And um, in a few, they told us uh, they described the Boston Saloon as a place of recreation of our own um, and that it was the popular resort for many of the colored population. So these are just two little parts of sentences, but they are huge when we're trying to put together this puzzle, puzzle and most of the pieces have been taken away. So if we go to 4 South D Street and zoom in a little bit, we are in we are behind the Bucket of Blood Saloon. <laughs> And there is a parking lot behind the Bucket of Blood Saloon that we had to dig up in order to lay down a grid, in order to do a major excavation and see if we could find William Brown and figure out what his life was like in that saloon. And much like the Opera House dig, there were nearly more artifacts than dirt. Um, it looks like there was a dump 
behind the building. Um, and, and, and then we found that the building itself had burned in 1875. Um, it was a great fire. Everybody knew about it. There was an ash lens. And so here are some of the things from the Boston Saloon. We've got glassware, um, but not just these, you know, um, little tumblers and shot glasses, objects like this, crystal stemware, nice little decanters. Um, this is a, a seal on a bottle that is a bitters bottle that came from Milan, Italy, of all places. Wow. Um, uh, wine and champagne, gaming. These are poker chips. Um, the item on top is a domino. Um, and it looks like the domino was initially made of bone. Um, if you look at it, it burned in the fire as well. And notice the bottom has kind of that bluish gray color um, that, that happens when bone burns. These are tobacco pipes, some mass produced, some different, uh, very exciting. We did DNA on one of the tobacco pipes just out of the hope that maybe there was some remnant DNA that might've lived in the, the bore stem or the pipe bore stem. Um, oh, and this is such a long story. I'm gonna skip the sidebar, but it's a real good one, but I'll turn it into something for another day. Um, the point is, I was wondering what type of DNA we might find. This forensic scientist said, it's pretty degraded. I know it's ancient. I can't tell you what type of person it's from other than it came from a woman. <laughs> so um, in, in that moment, I realized that even me, you know, me who's trying to think outside the box, I already assumed that it was men smoking all the tobacco pipes. And now the Boston Saloon was making me think different, not only about the diversity that was available in these icons of the so-called Wild West, but of all the people who were in there. And gosh darn it, if we didn't find all kinds of beautiful beads and buttons from ladies' dresses, ladies' clothing. So we have artifacts now that are signatures of women. And yes, it could be that men and others would have wanted to wear women's clothing, and maybe they did, but because we have the DNA from that tobacco pipe, that's pretty cool. And the tobacco pipe stem that was tested for DNA is this one, and notice there's little teeth clench marks in it and everything. Um, but I don't think that's the coolest part of the story. I think the coolest part of the story is that if you look in historical records, there are racist assumptions that these were um, dimly lit and they were fume filled and they weren't very clean and they weren't very nice. Well, we found these rusty pieces of metal among the debris from where the saloon burned and gosh darn it. They were from gas light fixtures and we found a patent mark and could even look up the patent and tell you the exact kind of gas light that was in the Boston Saloon. And it was intended to cut down on the obnoxious fumes and was a pretty high tech thing. Um, they were also serving food there. Um, the the top, top view is dinner plates stacked one on top of each other as if in your in your own kitchen. Uh, that would have probably been near the bar. It looks like it crashed and burned in the fire. Um, and we found animal bones. Animal bones that, yeah, you can tell what animal they were eating. But because of um, cuts of beef like this that were ranked in the 19th century, what was expensive, what wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. you can kind of look at it today and get a sense of what would be a more expensive or better cut of meat. Um, 
We had Bones at this saloon, at the Opera House saloon, and at the Irish saloon. So I did this thing for my doctoral dissertation where I compared the sheep and the beef to see who had the most expensive or high quality cuts of meat. The Boston Saloon is kind of that periwinkle light blue. Um, note that when compared with even the Opera House Saloon, it is off the charts serving the most high quality cuts of meat with pretty fancy fixtures, with nice, you know, nice glassware. Um, and then there's this Tabasco bottle that we have already talked oh. about in this class. This is the missing link of Tabasco bottles. The Tabasco company does not have one like this from this era. It too came out in many fragments and had to be mended together um, and appears to be from 1870-ish uh, era um, when Tabasco company had recently been formed and transitioned from using recycled cologne and perfume bottles and started making their own. The Tabasco company did not know how um, rare this was. We called them to ask for help with it. And they said, we thought it looked like this type. We have nothing like this. It's the only one of its kind and very exciting. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And we are definitely out of time. And so what I'll leave you with is we did some chemical residue analysis on this little splotch from a crock that came out of the Boston Saloon. It too came out in many pieces and had to be painstakingly mended together, mostly by this gentleman named Dan Uriola, rest his soul. We thought maybe that was blood or a paint splotch on it, so we submitted it for forensic analysis. Well, gosh darn it, the forensic scientist asked, would you have had some kind of a pepper sauce at that saloon? Because there's capsation and remnants of pepper sauce and animal fat in there. So we've got a sense of food, a sense of taste. They had music in there. There is a sign where you go there today, but now they had to recover it with the parking lot because that was our agreement. So um, to, this is maybe the longest answer to the question you could have ever had, but you know, the saloon is about a lot more than what we see in Hollywood and read in fiction novels. I would love for somebody to create, uh, well, I know somebody who's actually creating a, a story based on this. Um, I'll let him tell that story another day. Um, but these places embodied the diverse sociocultural and uh, milieu of mining communities. Um, and they are catering, the saloons are catering to the groups that are making up these cosmopolitan settings. And every time you open up one of their doors, you're gonna get a different story and probably something you never expected when you started. And Absolutely. I'm stopping talking now. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Again, folks, Kelly J. Dixon, Professor Kelly J. Dixon at Boomtown Saloons is the book's name, Archaeology and History in Virginia City. Dr. Dixon, I can't thank you enough. Your students are very lucky to have a knowledgeable and passionate teacher such as yourself. Thank you for doing the show. We truly appreciate it, Dr. Dixon. Well, thanks for asking us to share the story with you. This is a photo of William Brown to carry us all home. It was found after we were done at an estate sale, but oh, there wow. Yep. How about that? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, That's great pictures. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I don't, I can't take credit for the really good ones. Somebody else took those. <laughs> <laughs>
last week, actually, when I interviewed her, Taekwondo is fascinating because it, it, it it's going Hollywood. It, it found itself a niche. You know, all the yeah. movies like Undisputed. When uh, those kids are in those uniforms, they look good. Well, they look great spinning in those 720 kicks and you're flying around all over the place. It's perfect for movies. <laughs> so yeah. Now it's and wrestlers, yeah. you know, we're picking each other up and, you know, doing maybe it looks like we're doing a pile driver to the ground and the kids folding underneath the other kid with his legs sticking up and he comes up with a bloody nose and it starts drizzling down <laughs> to his t-shirt. And that's not video that people want to see in America. But, you know, that little kid who has that happen to him and he just goes over the coach says, hey, uh, can you show me where the Q-tips are or something? I just got to clean this off. I'm going to get back in there. That kid is the kid you want to hire. That is the kid who finishes the job, doesn't say, oh, we didn't have enough rakes, so we're not going to do this or we didn't have enough fat. That's the kid you can put in the back of a restaurant is going to keep everything running restaurants hard work right that is hard work (laughs) yeah you want those kids for their first jobs yeah you know because those kids finish things let me uh, have to wrap up a gene patino folks you can find them at oc-grappling.org oc-grappling.org you can also get them at info at oc-grappling.org thank you so much gene again for being here Oh, this is awesome. And if we ever want, you ever want to walk down that MMA lane again, that would be, that'd be cool. <laughs> oh, I think it'd be a lot of fun. And to even get some people from different professions would be kind of good or different uh, disciplines just to kind of chime in and talk about it. I think everybody knows what happened during that 10 year or the five year gap. <laughs> they saw the evolution. Yeah. Um, BJJ did a great job of showcasing their art. So I, my hat's off to BJJ. Oh, I'm yeah. a corporal belt under James Brand. I still love this. I still love BJJ, but I my true heart is still wrestling. It's fascinating because I know I'm a 10th Planet guy and I like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as well, but it, it's interesting to see how it continues to evolve right now. It's just yeah. amazing. It is. And the more wrestlers I think that do BJJ after wrestling's over, the better I think BJJ will become as a robust art because you need guys that are kind of hardened not just people off the street you know so you get a hardened wrestler with a division whatever background right they go into bjj place they learn submissions that raises the whole studio that's great that's true it's very true yeah so it makes the whole studio better excellent point thank you again folks for listening make sure to share subscribe hit that like button and go do a double egg talk to you all soon with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.